0: Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Robert Masello. Robert is an award-winning journalist, television writer, and the best-selling author of many books, including The Supernatural and Historical Thrillers, The Night Crossing, The Romanov Cross, and The Einstein Prophecy, which was a number one bestseller in the Amazon Kindle store. His latest book, The second and revised edition of Robert's Rules of Writing, 111 Unconventional Lessons That Every Writer Needs to Know, released a few months ago, and his latest historical suspense novel, The Haunting of H.G. Wells, was published last October. Robert, we're very excited to have you on the show today. How are you?
1: Fine, and thanks for having me.
0: My first question is always: Where are you in the world right now? We talked about it briefly before we started recording the podcast. But would you mind, for the audience's perspective, telling us where you're based right now?
1: Right now, I am sitting in my very cluttered office, four blocks from the beach in Santa Monica. And you know, if there's any interruption later, it's because the cat next door came to my door and wants to get into my office. Um, But yeah, this is where I live and work.
0: And I happen to know that you used to be in New York City, which is obviously the heart of writing, where a lot of the agencies and publishing houses are based. Does living in LA affect you, or did it affect you prior to, obviously, quarantine? Did it affect you location-wise?
1: Huh. It's a good question. Actually, you know, if you're a writer, especially a novelist, the pandemic didn't change my life very much. I felt bad. I felt like I'm being excluded here because. My life is pretty much, you know, you get up and you're alone all day and you're writing historical novels. There wasn't that much of a change. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, I would go down to the park, which is the bluffs along the beach. And I would take a walk sometimes with my friend, Mark, and we would just keep our masks on and keep six feet apart. But it wasn't that much of a radical change if you're a writer during the pandemic. You know, now life is starting to come back. You know, thank goodness, a little bit.
0: Before we get into process, because I'm very excited to talk about both of your books, I would love to, for, again, the context of the audience, get a little bit more info about your life and why you got into writing. So can you walk us through your career trajectory up to this point? Did you always want to be a writer?
1: You know, it was the one thing that I could sort of instinctively do and succeed at. But I think I was really inspired you're going to probably hear this from a lot of writers. When I grew up in Chicago, the local paper had a column called Newslady and it was open to all comers and my mother was a writer frustrated much of the time but she was also good she was kind of an Irma Bombeck kind of writer and she would sit down i remember watching her she'd sit down at a blue smith corona typewriter and she would type a column about you know the crazy hijinks that her kids were up to or what had happened at a cocktail party recently or some development in the neighborhood and then she would send it to the paper well actually She would finish writing it. She would give it to me to carry to the mailbox, which was a block away, and I would drop it in the mailbox, and then two weeks later, it would appear magically in the paper, and then she would get a $25 savings bond, and I thought, man, this is the ticket. Serious money, and there's no heavy lifting involved. You don't have to get up in the morning. This is the life for me. So anyway, that was the initial inspiration, I guess. And then, you know, during high school, I had teachers who were really great about some things. They knew about contests, for instance, that were being held by magazines. Seventeen magazine, for instance, used to be open to fiction by young people. And one of my teachers took one of my stories and encouraged me, or maybe she even did it herself. I think she might have done it. She sent it to Seventeen, with my permission, and they bought it and published it and actually paid me real money for that one, which allowed me to quit a terrible job at the hospital, which was my summer job. The minute I got that check, I went back there and I hung up my white coat. I said, that's it. Writing stories is for me. So then I cranked out a whole bunch of other stories for 17, not one of which was ever bought. It was only that first one. Then when I was in college, I majored in creative writing for a while. Before I thought, you know what, my parents are spending a heck of a lot of money for me to be here. I really maybe should think about studying Shakespeare and Chaucer and Faulkner and, say, writing my novel for my spare time later on. But while I was there, I became a Mademoiselle guest editor. I don't know if you know about that contest, but Mademoiselle magazine, which is no longer around, but was a great publication. used to hire college students for the summer to edit an issue of the magazine. I think it was the August issue or September. And Sylvia Plath, in fact, did it one summer, and she wrote about it in Book the Bell Jar which you guys presumably and your audience will know about and is a really good book and interesting. Then I went to New York after graduating because what else do you do? And I got into writing a lot of magazine pieces and a lot of journalism for New York Newsday. I wrote some pieces for the Washington Post, a lot of stuff for New York Magazine, pretty much all the slate publications that Hearst and Condé Nast were publishing. Because, I hate to run on like this, but I mean, because back in those days, you really could make a living at it. I mean, I'm not saying you got rich, but you could actually make a decent living writing for all the Slate magazines and even the newspapers, which I'm not sure you can do anymore. I think it would be a lot tougher. When I was in New York, I was chiefly a journalist, and then I started to write books. And then, this is maybe jumping ahead, but I mean, I got married to a woman who was an editor at Vogue, but she was from LA, so we moved out to LA. And that was the big switch. Because in New York, if you say to somebody, I'm a writer, their first question is, what books or, you know, what newspaper? But if you're out here in Los Angeles, you say, I'm a writer, they just say, what movies? What shows? And it wasn't long before I realized that people I met out here who were writers were driving Porsches and living in houses with swimming pools. And I thought, what are they writing that I'm not writing? I was still writing for magazines. But they, of course, were writing for television shows and the movie studios. So gradually I figured out that, you know, maybe that was the way to go if I'm gonna be out here. So I got into television writing for a while, and I wrote scripts for shows like Charm and Sliders and Poltergeist Legacy and Early Edition and things like that. But I got into it again, and this would be maybe instructive for people who are wondering what to write, what what their work might lead to next. I wasn't looking at this, this way, but I found out from somebody that some of my nonfiction books, which happened to be about black magic and the history of the occult, were being used as source material at various shows. So I was able to get on various shows by calling up and saying, you know what, you're using my books as research material. Did you know that I'm actually here? And you could use me. And that's when I started to see television scripts and sort of get a hang for, oh, you know, what those are about and how you write those. And it's a different kind of writing than doing what I was Used to doing, which was writing novels, which is very solitary. Television writing, you know, if you guys are interested in your audience, is the collaborative art. You are in a room with a lot of people all the time. And you have to, you well, know, I get along fine with people, but you've got to, you know, there's a lot of give and take. And some of your best ideas or what you think are your best ideas may fall by the wayside. And you end up sometimes writing scripts that, you know, your heart isn't completely in. But The money is great, way better
0: than journalism. I can say that for sure. There are 111 rules in Robert's Rules of Writing. We obviously can't go through all 111 today. We usually frame episodes around a certain theme. In this case, it would be great to maybe go through the haunting of H.G. Wells, maybe from inception to completion, using Robert's Rules of Writing. So would you be cool with me walking through those steps and maybe talking about both? Sure. The first step being inception of an idea. When you're writing a novel and you're coming up with different ideas and you're trying to decide what book you want to write next, obviously writers have a lot of ideas. How do you come up with those ideas and then how do you choose to move forward with one of those? And how does that tie into Robert's Rules of Writing?
1: Wow. Okay, A lot of ground to cover there. But I would start with this. If you're thinking about writing a novel, you had better. Really be in love with the idea, you know, because if you're going to write a column, you can do that in a morning in an hour or two. And if you're going to write a short story, it could take you a week or whatever. But if you're going to write a novel, you're going to be living with this idea, this conceit, this conception, these characters for, you know, unless you're a much faster writer than I am and I'm kind of slow, but you're going to be living with it for at least a couple of years. It takes me a year pretty much to write a draft. But then there's another year involved in making the changes and dealing with the editor. And sometimes it takes, you know, 14, 18 months, whatever, for the book to finally come out. So this is going to be a chunk of your life. You better really like the idea that you are going to shackle yourself to, you know, for many months to come. With The Haunting of H.G. Wells, let's see, actually. I think the initial conception came to me because there was a famous story in the First World War. This is true that's usually known as the Angels of Mons, the British troops, the British expeditionary force were being overwhelmed by the Germans in 1914 on a battlefield. And a story was written, but wasn't true. But it was published in the papers, in any case, it was by Arthur Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N, about how the British soldiers suddenly, you know, found themselves reinforced by a brigade of angels led by St. George that descended from heaven and repelled the Germans. It, was such a popular story and so embraced by the British population that they decided to promote it. And H.G. Wells, among other people, you know, were, were involved later in, you know, having to either, you know, support the story or, you know, basically admit that it was fiction. But it was such a morale booster for the British public that I thought there's a story here. Not only in that, but in H.G. Wells going to the front to verify the story, to talk to the soldiers, and that was wedded to something I'd read about a long time ago, which was an interesting thing about the First World War. You know, you had the two opposing armies, of course, you had no man's land in between, but under no man's land there were a lot of tunnels where deserters from both sides sometimes took shelter, and these guys were essentially dead; they were declared missing in action, but they could never. Surface again, or they'd be shot as deserters. So a lot of that stuff kind of played together in my mind, and I thought, I think I can make a novel out of this. And it got, it's hard to say, it got my juices flowing, and that's got to happen before you start writing one of these books. Now, a lot of writers, and there's a lesson about this in Robert's Rules of Writing, a lot of writers do, and I respect them, and I wish I could be one of them. They do these fantastically detailed outlines so that they never get lost in their book. I have a friend, George, he's published a number of military thrillers, and he does like an 85-page detailed outline of each book before he sits down to actually then write the novel. Those are plotters. There's also what are called pantsers, which is like writers who write by the seat of their pants, and that's me. I started out with that story from Arthur Machen about, you know, the Bowman, the angels of Mons. And by the way, that story can be found online and you can read it. I started out with that and a general conception of what the arc of the novel would be, that I was going to include that story as my starting point and that H.G. Wells was, of course, going to be my protagonist because he was, again, the most famous, you know, writer of his day, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Time Machine, and literally like a hundred other novels. It's astonishing the output of H.G. Wells. But when I start a book, I know where it starts, and I know kind of where it ends, but not exactly where it's going to end. I don't know for sure who's going to be alive, who's going to be dead at the end, and who's going to be in love. So there's that, you know, they sometimes say the book has a beginning, a muddle, and an end. And it's that muddle in the middle that's hard to work out. But I write it kind of step by step by step, maybe a thousand words a day. And I can't see much beyond that. I think the best analogy for that is something that E.L. Doctorow, a great writer to my revere, he said, writing a novel is like driving your car at night. You can only see as far ahead as your headlights allow, but still, you get where you're going. And for me, that headlight lamp distance is like a thousand words. I can see a thousand words ahead. And then usually, when I'm done with that, I'm a little lost. I'm a little depleted. That's when I go for my walk, or that's when I watch a movie or do something else. It's not that I stop thinking about the book, because when you're writing a novel, and here's another warning, you'll never stop thinking about the novel. It will always be somewhere in your mind and it'll be percolating. And then I go back to it the next day, and you hope that you've got another thousand words in you. And you generally do. What you can't do is really wait around for the muse. Some days, You know, the muse is right there at your side. Another day, she's very late. But the one thing I will say, and this is also another lesson in Robert's Rules of Writing, is nothing attracts the muse more than the sound of the clacking of your keyboard or the scratching of your quill pen on the paper. Once you throw yourself into it and you force yourself to just start writing, and don't worry if it's not writing to be preserved for the ages, it seldom is. You'll find yourself eventually in that flow state. The muse will show up, and you will get, you know, your 600 words, 1,000 words. People like, you know, Stephen King and Joyce Carol Oates and all, my God, I don't know. I don't know how they do it and how many words they get per day. But I think I was encouraged once to read that Philip Roth got like, you know, two pages a day, and he was happy with that. And he would spend the next day rewriting the second page of those two, and then he maybe would get two pages ahead again. But I think most writers will stick to, you know, a kind of a quota system. You know, my ex-wife used to make fun of me because she'd say, like, you know, the house could be on fire, and she'd tell me that. And I'd go, yeah, yeah, tell me later. I haven't gotten my quota yet. The whole thing was getting those words down with a computer, by the way, it'll count them for you. Before you allow yourself to do anything like, you know, go out and get coffee at Starbucks or whatever else it is you want to do.
0: Robert, you beat me to my next question, which was about the outline process. You mentioned that you are a pantser, but you must prepare characters, I imagine, before you start diving into the actual writing process, sitting down and typing through. What does the initial character creation development look like? Is there a certain number you choose? What are the questions you ask to develop them so that when you sit down to write them, you can truly write from their perspective?
1: Wow, that's another good and interesting question. You know, the same guy that I was mentioning who does the 85-page outlines, you know, for the books, he also does, and many writers do this, they do a whole character profile. You know, where the person went to college, how many brothers and sisters he or she had, you know, what their hobbies are, all that sort of thing. I don't do that either. I still kind of find my characters as I go. But one thing that's really been a great help for me is I've got some of the greatest characters in the world at my fingertips. Because I'm writing the last bunch of books have all been historical thrillers and The Einstein Prophecy was about Albert Einstein. The Night Crossing was about Bram Stoker. The Jekyll Revelation was about Robert Louis Stevenson. This new book The Haunting of HG Wells I have ready-made, fantastically interesting people. The book The Romanoff Cross was about the end of the Romanoff dynasty. The Medusa Amulet was about Benvenuto Cellini, who wrote a fantastic autobiography that fascinated me when I was a kid, which ends abruptly. So that was the inspiration for that book. I always was curious, like, what happened next? So I decided to complete it with my own book. When you're writing about these people... My God, their lives are so interesting and accomplished and variegated that a big piece of the work is done for me. Now, in the haunting of H. G. Wells, I had an even better you know, asset in that at the period of his life, 1914, 1918, you know, during the First World War, H. G. Wells, who was in his mid-40s, was passionately involved with and had a torrid relationship with, in fact, that bore a son with Rebecca West. And Rebecca West became one of the most accomplished journalists of her day and nonfiction writers. She also wrote some fiction. But she was 19 at the time. So there was this very disparate relationship, but also very ardent. And I had their letters back and forth to each other, which, you know, remained. So I had a built-in romantic relationship to build on. And I had H.G. Wells' career and all the various books that he had written up until that point all set against the backdrop of the First World War. So, you know, the pieces were kind of there for me. I also inserted, as I always do in my books, a lot of other prominent historical figures from the period. But again, since it was Rebecca West and H.G. Wells, they had in the course of their day interactions with people like Aleister Crowley, the famous occultist, and Winston Churchill. Who had not ascended to the eminence he did in the Second World War, but was already a government official of some stature, at the Admiralty, in fact. So I had all of these great elements to work with. And when you're writing historical fiction, what I tell people is, you know, who've read my books, I would say 90% of what I've written is accurate to the historical record. But there's at least 10% where I had to fudge things a little bit. I try not to make up too much stuff. But I try to stick as closely as I can to the facts while sometimes having to compress things like chronology just to make two events happen a little closer to each other than they might have done in real life. But by and large, the history, you know, of whatever I was writing about, the French Revolution, the Italian Renaissance, is right. But if you're a kid writing a term paper, don't write it based on what you read in one of my books. Check it first to make sure that that wasn't someplace where... I embroidered something, which occasionally, you know, you will do. You have to.
0: We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city. While our producer, Harry who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com writerexperience writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com writerexperience writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth podcast network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's A Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You mentioned the muddle in the middle, the working through the middle of the book, which is something, as you mentioned, many writers struggle with. Do you have any advice from your book for how to power through? I know you mentioned it briefly, but are there lessons specifically from your book about those things that can help writers get through, whether you have writers blocked during that time or they're just trying to get through the story.
1: I think when you're trying to get through that middle section, it's sort of important to remember what I said a little bit earlier, which is you're just going to be looking for 600 words, 1,000 words that day. You want to move a little bit forward if you can, and you can. And don't worry, sometimes you really might take a detour But you know what? It just occurs to me. It's like taking the express train or the local. If you take the express and you get on the wrong train, before you know it, you're 50 blocks past where you wanted to be. But if you're only doing a quota, you're doing 600 words, 1,000 words a day, it's like being on the local. You're not going to have gone too far off the path. You're not going to have made too great a detour to nowhere. And if you're a professional, you do realize sometimes you're going to realize that three days before you went to the right when you should have veered to the left. I remember when I was starting out as a writer many years ago, I had a friend, Linda, still have her, and she was a professional in New York City. And she gave me a manuscript that she was working on. And she said, I'm just stuck in the middle here. And I don't know why this thing isn't going forward. I can't figure out what's wrong. Do you mind reading it? So, of course, you know, because we would exchange work periodically. So I read it, and my heart sank because I could see exactly where the book went haywire. There was a certain point at which the protagonist went to Switzerland. And I thought, you know, when he goes to Switzerland, the book jumps the rails, and it doesn't find its way back. And I thought, but that's like 50 or 60 pages of the book have been written in Switzerland. How am I going to tell Linda this? I went over with great trepidation, the manuscript in my hand, I went to her apartment, she lived two blocks from me, and I sat in my usual place on the sofa, and she sat in her green velvet armchair, and there was a Siemens chest between us that she used as a coffee table sometimes, and she said, so, you know, what is wrong? Why is it just not progressing? And I said, I hate to say this, and I hemmed and I hawed, and I said, but your protagonist should never have gone to Switzerland, that's where." It- Goes off. And she sort of nodded and she said, You know, I had a suspicion about that. And she took those 50 or 60 pages, she lifted the top of the Siemens chest, and she threw them in there and closed the chest. And she said, Yeah, I got to go back and I'll take all that out and start again from that point before he left. And I was so impressed because if somebody had said that to me, 50 or 60 pages had to be thrown out, I'd have been on the floor crying and screaming. And I also would have been trying to figure out how can I salvage this? How can I keep him in Switzerland? How can I make the whole book about Switzerland? The fact that she was so matter-of-fact and professional about it, she approached writing which you have to do as not just an art, but a craft. You know, like you're building a table, and if one leg is just a little too short, you got to knock it off and then make a new leg. And that's what she was doing. And I remember taking a lesson from that. She was a great teacher on that and a lot of other things.
0: Robert, when writing... A novel, there is a delicate balance between writing description and writing dialogue. How do you tackle those? How do you follow a flow and know when to go from writing maybe a paragraph or then popping into dialogue? And then how do you know how to not spend too much time on dialogue? And how do you ebb and flow between those two?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're trying to decide between description and dialogue, I mean, some writers are very heavy, obviously, on one, and others are very heavy on the other. I think I'm probably in the middle someplace. This is going to sound crazy, but I know some writers, when they're writing on their computer or whatever, you know, they're double spacing it or whatever. I don't do that. I can't imagine that. It's all single spaced. And so when I'm looking at it, it looks a little bit like a book page. And also, I do something, you know, because I'm very old-fashioned, old school, I print out regularly. Just I have to have that hard copy in my hand. And when I look at it, you can look at the page does it look incredibly dense? Is it all description? Is it all narration? And when you see a page, two pages, more, where there is no break for dialogue, you know, my gosh, I think maybe it's time for these characters to be heard. And vice versa, it's the same thing. If I look at the page, and it's just a sprinkling of dialogue, and there's very little description and narration on there, And, you know, for one page, that's fine. But if it keeps going like that, I think, well, am I writing a play here or a screenplay? A lot of the writers out here in Los Angeles make this terrible mistake. And I, you know, because I write, have written scripts, but I also chiefly write books. Friends of mine who had written scripts, movie scripts, and not to get them produced, they decide, you know what, I hate to lose all this hard work. And I've got this great story here. So I'm going to turn this script into a novel. And because they think it's going to be easy. They think they're just going to add he said and she said. And what I tell them, and it's I think it's a lesson in Robert's Rules of Writing, is, and if it's not, it should be. I'll have to do another edition. Read your script if this is what you've got. If you've got a movie script, roughly 120 pages is what they usually run. Read it and then put it in the drawer of your desk. Then lock the drawer of your desk then lock the office door, and then, if necessary, move. Don't look at it again. You've got the story in your head. If you're going to turn it into a novel, you have to reimagine it. These are very different creatures, a novel and a screenplay. And you've got to come at it quite differently, sometimes with a different tone, different perspective. Things change. And adding he said, she said is going to take that 120-page screenplay up to maybe 135 pages, and you still don't have a novel. They're very different games. And I think, you know, people need to understand and respect that when they're doing it. Going back and forth, as I've done for some of my so-called career, is tough. I mean, I really respect, you know, terrific writers like Richard Price who can do both. But it's hard because you get into a rhythm of writing a novel, there's a kind of paste that you can use, and it's also a portmanteau form. You can keep stuffing stuff into it, into a novel. You can take it out later, but you got all the room in the world. You can write a 500-page novel. You can write a thousand-page novel. Donna Tartt's *The Goldfinch* was what 800 something pages and a bestseller at that. With a script, you can't do that generally. If you were Bertolucci, you can get away with writing and producing and directing long, long movies. But by and large, with a script. You've got to really narrow it down and you've got to keep things concise. When you're writing a scene, you've got to. And this is a lesson that I do know is in Robert's rules of writing. And I took this from screenwriting and I used it in The Haunting of H.G. Wells and I used it in all my novels. And it was taught to me when I started writing television stuff. And that lesson is arrive late and leave early. And by that, I mean start the scene or the chapter as late as you can. Let's just say it's going to take place in a college classroom. Don't write about the students you know, arriving and drifting in and taking their seats and all that. If the core of the scene is about one character maybe getting into it with a debate or something with the professor, start as quickly as you can just before the critical moment. What's the core of the scene? So you arrive late. Get there when things are about to happen, when the crux of the scene is there. And as soon as you're done with that, leave. Don't hang around for the shuffling of feet, the gathering of books, and people filing out of the classroom again. You don't need that. Elmore Leonard had some you know, great quote. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Somebody said to him, you know, your books crackle along and move so quickly. And he said, well, I leave out the parts that people don't want to read. If your character gets up in the morning and has breakfast, you don't need to know, you know what kind of marmalade they had on the toast and all of that, unless that's going to prove to be a plot point. Maybe it will. But if it's not,
0: move it along." Robert, my last process-related question, because I have some bonus questions I want to ask you, is related to revision process. For some writers, differs. For some, they write the whole book, and they do multiple passes. For you, as a self-proclaimed pantser, are you writing chapter by chapter, and making each chapter perfect before proceeding? Or are you going through a rough first draft, and then going back through?
1: No, I am one of those guys, and I think this is true for most writers, and I think should hold true. You can drive yourself crazy if you keep going back and trying to make every word perfect that's in your wake. I believe in plowing forward a little bit or a lot, if you're productive and prolific, every day. My first novel a million years ago was called The Spiritwood. And I remember I thought then that I had to start each day by reading from the beginning and then right to the point at which you know, I'd stopped writing you know the day before and pick up there. Boy, was I crazy. I wasted so much time. The prologue to that book, as a result, probably got written 74 times because each time I ended up you know, playing with it again. That novel took a lot longer than it should have. In fact, I wrote that novel on yellow legal pads you know, with a big pen. That's how long ago it was. So I believe personally that, yes, you can go back and fix things and make notes to yourself all the time. I'm always doing that. But by and large, I think you should always try to plow a little bit of new and fertile ground. I have an office here which has corkboard on a lot of the walls. And where there isn't corkboard, I just have white walls. And I also have old-fashioned index cards. And when I was writing a book like The Haunting of H.G. I would finish each chapter, write a summary of that chapter just in a couple of lines with a big magic marker on a big index card, and I would stick it on the wall. This is a great home decorating tip, by the way. Your spouse is going to love it. So that the place was finally, by the time I'm done with the book, my office and the courtboards are festooned with these index cards that have the chapters on them. A lot of my novels, or several of them, I should say, also were two different chronologies. There would be a present-day story and a story in the past, for instance, where some books are told from kind of two points of view. The Haunting of H.G. Wells would we go back and forth often between H.G. Wells' point of view and that of Rebecca West, the suffragette and writer. So for that also, I would use different colored magic markers. So I could look at the wall, and I could follow the storyline just by looking at the cascade of cards down the wall. And depending on the color ink, I could tell whose perspective each chapter was from or which chronological period, if it was one of those novels that had two different storylines and two different eras. I could follow it that way. If the past story was always told in blue ink, and I looked up at my wall, and I saw that there was no blue index card for the last three or four cards, I would realize I'd made a mistake, and people were probably going to have forgotten what was happening in the other part of the story. So, I mean, that's just one. Most of the stuff, a normal person would be doing this at some fantastically wonderful computer program. But again, since I'm very analog-oriented, I'm using index cards, but It allows me to just sit back in my chair and look around the room and I can follow the story that I'm writing to right up to the point where I've stopped. And sometimes I actually run out of walls, but that's another issue.
0: Robert, I would love to ask you what we call a series of seemingly random questions. The first one, you mentioned what kind of marmalade someone has on their toast. What kind of marmalade do you have on your toast? How important is a breakfast to a writer?
1: You know what? That's sort of funny, but I mean, I don't understand breakfast. I never have. I like to get up late. That's the whole point of being a writer. But actually, there is a point to be made about Marmalade. I mean, because there's a chapter in Robert Sewell's writing about this in a way. Every detail that you offer, what a character likes in the morning for breakfast, for instance, or what car she drives or how the person dresses, is a clue to the reader about that person's character and extraneous stuff and too much stuff you don't need but it's just a few of those things will actually create in the mind of the reader what that character looks like, what that character behaves like, what that character sounds like. So those are sort of cultural signifiers, but it's important to
0: keep them in mind. The next question, our mutual friends, Rob Ackerman and Carol Weston, both incredibly talented writers themselves. Shout out to both of them. I was just
1: about to say that.
0: (laughs) They mentioned that you have some really great, Stories. If you had to choose one story you'd like to share, I guess in regards to writing, what's the one story you would tell? Oh my God.
1: (laughs) Well, here's the difference between, I don't know, there's a bunch of stories. I don't know. This one comes to mind. When you're writing a novel or a short story, but if you're writing a novel, you're the boss. You can do whatever you want, it's your baby, and even your editor will bow to your judgment. Your editor will suggest things and stuff, but still the final call is generally yours. If you're writing screenplays, which I've also done out here in Los Angeles, you're not the boss. The boss is the studio or the executive. And when they make a suggestion, it's not just a suggestion. It's really something that you probably have to pay attention to and maybe change. When I was writing one of my first scripts, it was for a producer at MGM, I learned quickly. Well, it was one of the first scripts. Yeah, I went in and the executive was sitting there and he was on a headset and I'd never seen one of those before. So I didn't realize he was talking to somebody else, even though I was being ushered into the room. But, you know, he was one of those guys in an Armani suit with Armani glasses and Armani hair, and he was probably 12 years old. But he gestured for me to sit down on a love seat and wait for his notes about my script that I'd submitted to him a week before. And at some point, I guess the conversation, the more important one that he was having on the headset ended. And he leaned forward to me and he said, have I told you? my new idea for your script. And I said, immediately, no, but I love it. And he didn't know, he didn't even spot He just like sat back like, good, we're on the same page. And I thought, I have succumbed to Hollywood. (laughs) I now know that whatever he's gonna tell me, I'm gonna do, and it's to no avail to fight it. If I want this script to be produced, this is going to be the way it's gonna have to go.
0: The second to last question, You've written about writers, including H. G. Wells and Bram Stoker, but if you could choose one writer, living or dead, to take to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why?
1: Gosh, who would I take with me as company? Well, it depends, you know. I'm thinking about Philip Roth a lot because I just read that magisterial biography that Blake Bailey wrote that got into a trouble. And of the writers that I've written about, that's a tough question. Robert Louis Stevenson is wonderful. He told some great stories like Kidnap, which is, you know, one of his most famous and the Master of Ballantrae and things like that. But he also wrote in Scottish dialect, which is really, really hard to read. So I probably would not take him. As restaurants go here in Los Angeles, you know, gosh, I'd go to maybe uh, Lusso and Frank's. They have fantastic martinis there. And if I were in New York, especially this time of year, I would go to the Russian tea room Because it always feels like Christmas at the Russian tea room, or at least it used to. I haven't been there in so many years, but that's probably where I would go. Very
0: last question. There are 111 Robert's Rules of Writing, but if you could choose one learning or insight from your entire career to pass along to the writers who are listening, what's the one thing you would say?
1: Wow. You know what? I guess I would say, write what you love. Too many times I have encountered writers who are writing Something that they think is commercial or that they think the marketplace is going to be looking for, but their heart isn't completely in it. And what I always say to people is, what's on your bedside table or what's on your Kindle? I mean, what is it you read for your own pleasure and enjoyment? Because that is what you should be writing. You already, whether you know it or not, you know the landmarks, you know the geography, you know the landscape, you know the tenor, and it's something that you love and enjoy. My father used to say to me whenever I wrote a book, you know, why don't you write one of those John Grisham books? And I'd say, because John Grisham is writing those books. And I couldn't write them. You have to figure out what it is that really appeals to you. And maybe you're embarrassed about it. Maybe you really just like sci-fi dystopian novels, or maybe you just like really cozy murder mysteries. Don't worry about that. It's not a problem. There are other people who share your tastes. And whatever that taste is, That's what you should be honing in on, and that's what you should be trying to write, because that's where you will be the most persuasive, the most convincing, and where the story will come out in its best version.
0: Robert, the very last and most important question. Harry, can I get a drum roll, please? Okay. (laughs) Please hand me the envelope. And the last question is, are you on the edge of your seat, Robert? I actually am, as it turns out. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have fun today talking about writing with us?
1: Oh, absolutely. I can talk about this stuff forever, though I don't know if people can listen to it forever. But yeah, it comes kind of naturally to me in terms of this is the stuff I think about and have been doing for
0: more years than I would care to admit. Well, thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Robert's latest book, the second and revised edition of Robert's Rules of Writing, 111 Unconventional Lessons That Every Writer Needs to Know at least a few months ago in his latest historical suspense novel The Haunting of H.G. Wells was published last October if you're listening please go check them out and support Robert Robert did you want to plug anything else your website your social media anything at all
1: Well no I guess I mean they could go to www.robertmacello.com if they want to read about or you know see a selection of my books but yeah they could go to the website on www.robertmacello.com to see most of my books
0: Robert's Rules of Writing is also on Amazon, so please check it out there. Robert, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Really appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. Listen, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur Production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin MacLeod.